You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Goldsevich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bozno's Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's a gorgeous summer afternoon. We'd like to be outside working in the yard, but you know, it's just one of those things where you got to keep working inside sometimes. Uh, and you know, Things are getting kind of crazy. You know, we're, we're, we're just a day past the one-day special session, and, and uh, we are really uh, getting crazy to the point where I'm ready to, you know, I've got my Timber Unity stuff on. I'm ready for another convoy. This is Duck. You've got a copy on me, Big Ben. Come on. Uh, yeah, 10-4, Big Ben, for sure, for sure. By golly, it's clean, clear to Flagtown. Come on. Yeah, it's a big 10-4 there, Big Ben. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, looks like we've got us a convoy. It was a dark moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on <laughs> And yes, I'm old enough to remember that song. Uh, and I had a CB in my my uh, band at the time. <laughs> so um, things have really gotten crazy in Oregon. Uh, yeah, we we've 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 got this incredible recession going on due to what our response to the the COVID pandemic has been. And you know, we weren't doing all that well in parts of the state outside of the Portland metro area, even before the pandemic came along. And, you know, the federal government tried to help us out. And they gave the state of Portland a whole bunch of money as part of the CARES Act uh, that was supposed to, part of it was supposed to go to local governments. And in fact, if you're a local government that had more than a half million people you got your money directly from the feds based on your population. So Washington County and Portland got their big amounts. And then they realized, oh, you know, Multnomah County has over half a million, but Portland's in Multnomah County. And they kind of screwed Multnomah County because what they did was they took Portland's money out of it and, and basically only gave Multnomah County money for the folks that live outside the city of Portland. So they sort of got screwed, except for Portland got so much money. Um, it's incredible that if you look at those three jurisdictions and the amount of money they got from the feds to deal with the coronavirus, you know, where they can use that money for all sorts of things under the federal guidance, 
like you know uh, uh, you know their extra hours they've had to work in their public health department to uh, helping small businesses to rent assistance you know all sorts of places where that money can be used they got theirs directly last spring at about $172 per person. So they, they got millions of dollars up there in the Portland area in those jurisdictions. Now, poor Clackamas County is just like the rest of the state. We're having to wait for the state to divvy up the, their portion of the CARES Act. And the federal government recommended taking 45% of that money and distributing it to local governments, which would have been over $600 million. State has only promised to distribute 200 million of that 600 and some million dollars. And they're doing it on a reimbursement basis. And they've been so slow in telling us what they're willing to reimburse that and the fact that smaller jurisdictions can't afford to upfront pay for a program and then ask for reimbursement and hoping the state allows that program to be in the pro to be reimbursed. But there, you know, there's a big lag there to the point where what they promised and for Lane County, the calculation works out. And this includes the cities of Eugene and Springfield and the other 10 uh, incorporated cities on down to, you know, Westfer and Dune City. All of those put together with Lane County's money would equal $74 a person as part of that $200 million. Yet what they've actually promised to reimburse to date and approved is $27 per person here in Lane County. $174 per person up front given to the Portland metro area versus $74 promised to Lane County and $27 actual being provided. Seems like there's two sets of, of people in Oregon. Those that live in Portland, and I apologize for the barking in the background, my dogs are mad too. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And we should be mad as hell, because basically there's become two levels of citizenry in the state of Oregon. Those that live in Portland and, and, the, and the government elite in the state government, and those that don't. You know, while we're struggling out here, in the rest of Oregon that's lagging way behind the Portland metro area and getting back on our feet after the 2008 recession. We are, you know, then being hit by coronavirus and then the relief that's supposed to come down through local governments is being held up by the state. And they're basically making us apply to the state for this money with a whole bunch of restrictions, whereas Washington and County and Portland got their money up front with almost no restrictions. They don't have to account to the state, yet we're being made to. And we're getting a pittance, and the state's holding on to it with the 
you know, with the excuse, well, the state has more buying power. We're going to use some of this to buy, you know, personal protection equipment, PPE for everybody, and we'll help distribute it. Well, how well has that worked out when the states used federal money before with their great buying power? Can anybody remember Cover Oregon? I'm sorry, I got to close my door real quick and see if I can deal with this noise. Must be your constituents. Yeah, must be. They're still mad. Elizabeth was in Portland today, of all things, and, and just returned in the middle of the show. She had to go up there for work also. Um, but, you know, here we've got this division where Portland's getting all this relief money, yet they were, you know, doing much better before the pandemic. And I imagine they're doing okay post-pandemic, other than, you know, they never really got out of, into phase one. And, um, you know, we're really having a, a, a tough time here out in the hinterland. And yet the state is holding on to this money, just like, you know, they did with the $80 million that was supposed to fix our unemployment system. You know, and that's really um, not a good thing. So, you know, we... We, we look at this, this discrepancy that we have going on and, and how do we fix it? Who's got control of this money? Well, it's the executive branch and Kate Brown and the e-board that can actually distribute the funds, which is the emergency board for the legislature, which is basically handpicked by the leadership of the legislature, i.e. Speaker Kotek and Senate President Courtney. So who do you get mad at about this whole thing? You're going to have to get mad at the governor, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate President. They need to hear from everybody outside of Washington and Multnomah County that we should be getting that relief money directly to local governments because we know how to spend it. And we do a better job of spending that money than the state does in a lot of ways. We know what our local areas need, whether it's rent supports or whether it's small business supports. We understand that. And it's going to be different in in Baker City than it is going to be down in Medford versus up in Clackamas. So, we really should be getting mad at the folks there. So looks like we've got somebody that's already called in, even though I did not give the call-in number, which is 646-721-9887, bringing Nathan on the show. Nathan, you have a question or a comment? Yeah, yeah I got a comment. I, I just ran across your show, and I'm pretty impressed with it, and I'm going to keep uh, listening. But listen, I just got something that a lot of people don't know about. If you can look into this, Go to YouTube, and this is a true historical uh, act that happened in Congress. Uh, if you go and type in, not yours to give, Davy Davy Crockett's speech before the House, I believe that this is the answer we need for Washington. When you get after the show, if you would look into it. And uh, um, uh, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate you listening. Yes, sir. Bye-bye.
All right, great. Yeah, Davy Crockett, a great American. Um, I'll look that up because I probably I probably have heard it, but I can't remember exactly um, the the gist of the speech. So, not yours to give by Davy Crockett. It's always good to go back sometimes and and listen to history because sometimes we start repeating history, and when you start seeing um, a central control of government, and that's what the state's trying to do by keeping the money that's supposed to go to local governments, the governments closest to the people. They want to move it uphill to Salem and Portland to make decisions about what's best for everybody across the state. Centralizing control. Hmm. Where have we seen that before in history? Can we talk about China and Russia maybe? Hmm. I think it also happened in Italy and Germany once too. You know, so you know th this this desire by the political elite sometimes and the establishment to take central control over so much. I mean, I you know the feds understood times the people best able to deal with an emergency are those people that are closest to the people experiencing the emergency. I mean, you know, I don't know how Kate Brown thinks she can deal with this money better than a local government can. I mean, she still hasn't gotten unemployment insurance to independent contractors that were put out of work by her executive orders last February, six months ago. She held on to $80 million worth of federal money that should have fixed that system and made it more flexible to be able to, to change on the fly. Yes, there was a large demand, but I don't think any other state has had problems with our unemployment that this state's had. Yet, the criticism is, oh, you guys may not spend it well, and we'll have more buying power, so we're going to hang on to it. Oh, you guys haven't used all the money we've offered to you yet so far. Well, you waited forever to offer it to us, put a bunch of restrictions on it, and you're being slow to respond to requests for pre-approval of knowledge that we'll be able to actually get reimbursed if we start a new program. How in the world can you expect a city or a county to, to upfront the cost of some program with the expectation the state's going to eventually reimburse us if you won't tell us that program's actually eligible for reimbursement up front. And then you criticize us because we haven't spent the money yet. You can't tell I'm a little bit fired up about this, but it is just outrageous, completely outrageous that we're being divided into this, you know, those that have up in Portland and everyone else in the state. And you and you look at the legislature and, and the way the redistricting was gerrymandered 20 years ago and continued on last time. And of course, it looks like Eleanor Rosenbaum doesn't want us to have a system that's fair and is fighting the ballot measure that would actually take that power away from the elites to gerrymander. Um, but it's made it so that there's so much power concentrated in Portland. 
that most of our legislators live in Portland and the Portland metro area. And therefore, the rest of the state, you know, just behind the eight ball. And, uh, uh, yeah, um, just got a note that somebody loves my hat. <laughs> so, uh, that the, uh, you know, that, that disparity, you know, and people wondered why, you know, when that group of Portland legislators that are so single-minded that they're going to try and appease the environmental crowd, you know, that they, they put forward this carbon cap tax and spend bill that was going to punish rural communities severely couldn't understand why we had that huge convoy to Salem last year. And if they don't watch it, there's going to be another convoy. But, you know, the legislators aren't in Salem. They always, you know, came in for a day, and they didn't allow anyone in the building. And they, you know, held, held committee meetings and approved bills with no public testimony other than their own invited testimony. You know, you know, very open process there, legislature. Um, and then, you know, worked till the dark of night and, and adjourned, you know, close to midnight and ran out of there. So running a convoy up to Salem right now doesn't seem like it might work. So I'm kind of thinking maybe it's time to take on the tactics of some of the uh, protesters that are currently uh, in Portland. Maybe we should start going to some of these leaders personal residences or the governor's mansion. You know, maybe it's time to run a bunch of log trucks round and round Tina Kotek's home and neighborhood. See if that might, you know, get a little reaction. You know, maybe it's time to have a bunch of tractors go round and round Peter Courtney's house. You know, see if that gets a reaction. I'm kind of wondering if we'll get dealt with in the same way as the Portland protesters, the hands-off and then eventually don't prosecute routine that's going on up there. And speaking of Portland, here's another way the Portland folks are getting service and the rest of the state isn't. I was made aware last week, well, on Friday, that there are over 100 Oregon State police officers currently being stationed in Portland to deal with the nightly protests. Now, mind you, there's only 700 and some total bodies in the Oregon State Police from top to bottom. And about 400 of those are the actual patrol division because there's things like the fish and game folks and, and admin and, and command structure or whatever that's outside of that. So if there's 100 officers that are trained in crowd control up there, now, they are borrowing a few now and then from Fish and Game and a few other places, but the majority of those are coming out of the patrol division. What's happening to the OSP that's supposed to be backing up the one or two deputies in Josephine County or our three deputies that are on patrol anytime here in Lane County? Where are those guys? If about, you know, somewhere between one-eighth to one-fourth of their available force is in Portland. How many laws are not being enforced out in the rest of the state? Portland gets the service. 
you know, not only are they getting $174 per person in federal money with no strings attached up front, not reimbursement, while the rest of the state's getting somewhere, you know, Coos County is getting $64 a person. or is being promised $64 a person on a reimbursement program with a lot of strings attached. And they're pulling OSP officers out of Coos County to go to Portland, basically watch the protesters burn the police union building, and then have the local DA not charge people. Are you ready to run to the window and open it up and scream? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hey, when, when do we when do we not get mad about this? You know, when does it finally become the rest of Oregon's turn? I'm kind of sad that that whole you know Greater Idaho thing didn't pass um, and get get on the ballot. Um, because I'm beginning to think that's the only way rural Oregon's going to survive is if we get separate ourselves from from the Portland elite and the Salem elite. And you know, it, it, and here's another great one. So Governor Brown is mad about the special session because not all of her bills were approved. One bill didn't make it out of out of and, and mind you, this special session should have only been about finances and fixing the budget hole. And she wanted to push through policy bills, which they got some policy bills through. In such a short time with no public input, you know, and they actually didn't print the bills out till late Sunday night. So people came in Monday to find out what they were going to vote on that day. That said, there were three bills that dealt with the unemployment office, two of which were kind of important. Um, which were to help the unemployment office actually, you know, change a few rules to make it easier for them to get unemployment out quickly and actually make it so that people could, you know, earn a little bit of money, wouldn't completely lose their unemployment. But one of, she had a third bill that would have basically taken anybody that works for, you know, an education district, you know, like the Eugene school district or or whatever eligible for unemployment and put them at the front of the line to, to to be processed and basically take all of these folks and make them a different class of people sound familiar now the thing is which large union in this state is one of the biggest political contributors to the current supermajority and their leadership and the governor. Oh yeah, the Oregon Education Association, SEIU, ASME, all those public employee unions folks that work in school districts. Do you think that this bill was maybe just a little self-serving that Kate Brown put forward? And she's gonna move all those public employee union folks ahead of the line in front of those folks that are independent contractors she put out of work with her executive orders six months ago. And then she was mad because it didn't make it through. 
Thank you, Senator Betsy Johnson, for having some integrity and calling out the disparity and the inequity in the system that this would have created. I just have to say, she is my hero. And if you hear her remarks on this particular bill, you would stand up and cheer. But I can't believe the governor was mad that it didn't pass. I can't believe she even put it forward. Ready for that convoy? I mean, really. The state's trying to hold on and steal money that should be going out to the rural areas from the local governments and our coronavirus relief fund. They're pulling officers out of the rural areas in Portland to deal with the protests. And at the same time, the governor wants to take union school employees and put them ahead of everybody else in line at the unemployment office. And you wonder how the timber unity movement got started. And how the grassroots just seem to go nuts and swell. This is why, you know, just it's completely, completely, you know, uh, wrong. And, and, and if you want to make, you know, make it even worse, the governor proposed closing two prisons. Now, she didn't propose closing the ones in Salem or, or anywhere up in the Portland metro area. She proposed closing two rural facilities in communities that have been severely impacted since the spotted owl. Those are the two she picks. Now, thank goodness the legislature didn't bite on that and refused to approve it. And, but by the way, she can still do it because it's part of the executive branch's powers. She can close those facilities. Now, mind you, she's been trying to push prisoners out on, on the excuse of doing things under COVID, but she's always been pushing that direction. She's pushed for a lot of the, the, the laws that have reduced sentences on everything, you know, from dealer quantities of drugs to, um, you know, felony property crimes, trying to save the state money on prison stuff. And now she's trying to use COVID to force folks out, while at the same time underfunding our parole and probation system. Then she's going to push these folks out of the prison system down to the counties who are running parole and probation, by the way. Uh, and with that limited parole and probation service that's been underfunded, put more people into that system. Now, you think those folks are going to be successful if they're pushed out now at a time when we have such a limited ability to help them transition well into society post-prison? You know, what's she thinking about? And at the same time, the budget cuts that were made on, on Monday included mental health. This whole thing, just it, you know, one thing after another. But education was held harmless. They pulled $400 million out of a rainy day fund for education. 
you know, can't let the education folks take any budget hits because they write a lot of checks and they get at a lot of people to knock on doors and make sure people get elected. So I want to remind folks, this is a call-in show. 646-721-9887 is the number to call in. Just press one so we know you want to get in on the show, like Nathan did earlier. Puts a little question mark up on our board, because we do have people that call in just to listen. Again, it's 646-721-9887. And press one, and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. And Robin's the one that managed to get that convoy and uh, uh, the uh, the piece from uh, network uh, sound bites out there. She you know she just I'm she just, mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. And she loves pressing that button. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but you know it it's there, there's lots to talk about today, and I think I've thrown a lot out there for you. So, you know, give us a call here because I love having a conversation. Uh, Again, 646-721-9887 is the number. And uh, we can talk about all sorts of things. We can talk about Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Uh, You know, there's, you know, the Pac-12 not holding their their sports in the fall. You know, there's there's all sorts of things to talk about out there uh, in in the world uh, and locally here. Um, and in fact, if we even want to talk locally, um, we had a little bit of a scare this morning in downtown Eugene where they used that reverse 911 system to call a bunch of uh, the, the immediate downtown area, which included the county offices, and told us to shelter in place. And, you know, I, what's weird is my voicemails get forwarded to my email, so I actually got the warning at home here in Elmira because I wasn't in the office today, I was working from home. But apparently there was a domestic dispute at a set of apartments, um, which is kind of interesting. It's a, the, when that, those apartments were being built, that was there was a protest by um, anarchists there about the trees being cut down many years ago, <laughs> back in the 90s. But that's a little bit of backstory history in Eugene. But uh, those apartments over uh, on West Broadway, uh, there on Charlton and uh, West Broadway. Um, uh, so domestic dispute. Apparently, a guy ran out of the apartment with a, and was armed. And because he was armed, they they called for people. He got shelter in place because he ran and got and uh, uh, eluded for a few minutes. The police they they managed to capture him within a half hour, I think, and called off the uh, the shelter in place. But you know, um, you kind of wonder, you know. We're hearing a lot now about the impacts of the of the executive orders around dealing with coronavirus with with mental health issues. We're hearing that teen suicide is is in record amounts right now. We're hearing that domestic violence is going up, which you kind of wonder whether or not the uh, the uh, um, incident in downtown Eugene, it was anything related to the fact that two people had been in an apartment together for too long, possibly. Just maybe, just wondering. 
you know, there's only so much, you know, binge watching you can do and so much of, 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 you know, cleaning out the apartment or whatever, you know, it, it, it may get to the point, you know, and we're seeing it with assaults and, and domestic violence calls are, are increasing. We're seeing suicides go up. We're seeing drug overdoses increase. So, you know, it might be time for us to think about the balance between the, and risk. You know, life is risk management. You know, and, and we, ha- we, we, we accept risk all the time. Every time you get in your car, you could be in an accident. In fact, there's a pretty high likelihood that you'll get in an accident sometime during a year in a, in a motor vehicle. And then there's the likelihood that you might be injured in that accident. And then there's a likelihood you could even die in that accident. What's interesting though, for the state of Oregon, is in all three of those categories, if you equate being in an accident to catching COVID, getting injured in an accident to being hospitalized by COVID, and dying in an accident, to dying with COVID, the actual risk right now, if you take the six months of COVID and make it annual and compare it to your risk of being in a car accident, being injured and dying are actually greater. Not much, but they're slightly greater. They're in the same ballpark. Based on our population, number of hospitalizations, number of deaths, number of cases. So we need to have conversations. You know, we don't dri- we don't stop driving because of those risks. We do try and educate people to to do things that that limit that risk, and we put a lot of safety equipment that's actually changed the hospitalization, the injury and death rates from from vehicle accidents. And we've even made our vehicles safer with, you know, the, the lane warning stuff and the collision warning and, and the airbags and everything else. So, you know, how can we maybe start mitigating some of the risk around suicides, drug overdoses, domestic violence that are coming with this, how we're dealing with COVID? Are there better ways for us to maybe mitigate COVID risk that don't actually add to other risk categories? And we really haven't had that conversation here in Oregon. And I think we need to. And particularly with kids. And and what's more dangerous, the lack of socialization and going to school and the inability of their parents to work because they can't go to work because they don't have any child care and they don't have the schools for kids to go to. You know, where is this all going to end up? The, the economic impoverishment of a lot of our folks is its own health crisis. Poverty is a huge driver of poor health outcomes. In fact, there was a study by the Columbia University, the, the Mailman uh, uh, Institute for Public Health there, that's part of Columbia University in New York City, not 
a conservative organization back in 2008 that said poverty is actually a greater indicator of a poor health outcome for somebody than smoking and obesity. We're driving folks into poverty with some of our policies to prevent the spread of COVID. So we need to have those conversations. You know, what, what's, what's the most important thing? You know, and, and what are the risks around COVID? And there's still a lot of risks. I mean, I wear my mask in public. I wash my hands. I try and keep my six feet of distance. I limit, you know, how much I, I expose myself so I keep, so I don't expose my family. You know, it, it's, it's the smart thing to do. Just as I don't text while I drive, I don't drink and drive. <laughs> it's the smart thing to do. Um, you know, that, that's just, you know, we have to get to that stage where people are doing things like they would do defensive driving. We need to be defensively living around COVID, but we don't need to stop living. We have to figure out that happy medium that gets us back into some economic, you know, prosperity for folks, gets folks back socializing so we don't have suicides, so we don't have drug overdoses, so we don't have domestic violence. You know, we need people to be healthy because as we're causing those problems that are mental health issues, we're actually having to cut our mental health budget because of the downturn in the economy caused by what's causing those mental health problems, which is the policies around preventing COVID that our governor and the state have taken. So just a, a, a little sidetrack there on the COVID side, which by the way, we're still doing really well in Oregon we're still doing really well in Lane County. So, you know, we're doing even better than our state, which is doing much better than the rest of the country. So, I, you know, we have some room to play. You know, we're not New York or New York City, even worse, as far as when it comes to case, case rates and death rates and hospitalization rates. So, um, Still going to take a pause here and remind folks this is a call-in show, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 if you want to get in on the conversation. Again, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and we'll get you on the air here. If you have a question, a comment, or you want to switch the conversation to a different topic, we'll go there. So, um, yeah, we, we can talk a little bit about um, you know, this whole uh, idea of um, police reform, because I, I, one of the reasons I heard about the OSP uh, reassignment of their forces into Portland was I attended uh, and chaired the, or, the Association of Oregon County's Public Safety Legislative Committee on Friday. And uh, Tim Fox with OSP reported out to us and somebody asked a question about how many officers were in Portland, um, which I'm glad they did because I had no idea. Um, but during that meeting, we talked a lot about some of the proposals that legislatures are tossing around uh, to, to, quote, reform our, our public safety system here in Oregon. 
And yeah, you know, one of them, you know, is, is such an unfunded mandate where there was a, a bill that would have required um, certain things that couldn't be part of a police uniform and certain things that had to be part of a police uniform. And it was just one of those kinds of top down, we're back to central control here at the legislature, uh, top down uh, misguided efforts I've ever seen and, and unknowing. I mean, just, you know, I, I was talking to the, the city manager for Medford, for them to reuniform their police force in Medford would be $184,000. That's a body for them. They have to, 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 to lay somebody off to buy new uniforms if that bill passes. And I imagine that's true across the state. You know, and this is all just to try and appease you know, this, this thought that there's something inherently wrong with our public safety system here in Oregon. And that's the part I, I just don't see people pushing back about. Our, and I, I spoke up about this at the meeting on Friday, and I encouraged our members to start talking to legislatures about this. Our public safety system in Oregon is different from the rest of the country. We have been working on reforms for years in this state and making our system truly about restorative justice for the victims, restorative justice for the perpetrators of crime in so many ways. And it, it's so far ahead of so much of the country to blindly just think that our system is broken here in Oregon and needs knee-jerk centralized control reactions is, is just it, it's a bad way of running the system and really need we need to stop and think about how our system runs because you know in this state you know we've got our u.s senator taking a program here locally in lane county that, that's supported by the county and the city of eugene called cahoots where it's a mental health response on the street instead of the police and proposing to make it a national model and provide federal funding for it to be spread across the, 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 the nation. Now, do you kind of think that maybe Oregon's leading the way? Funny about that is all these people that are calling for the defunding of public safety, we fund cahoots through parts of our public safety budgets and our human services budgets. And CAHOOTS could not exist without EPD. The Eugene Police Department provides the backup to them. And I've actually talked to somebody that manned one of their vans for a while, and she told me that there was multiple times that they were so glad they had the ability to call EPD, usually on a code three, lights and sirens to come and help them out. Because sometimes that person that's in a mental health crisis is not able to be de-escalated and taken care of by the CAHOOTS team and is actually to the point of violence and needs a law enforcement response versus a mental health response. 
And in fact, Lane County, through a grant from the federal government and the state, has actually put a pilot program to, to have cahoots go out to Western Lane County and, and go to rural, a rural community. And we've actually started phase one of that with the Sayusla Fire District providing the service in Florence with the Florence Police Department providing that law enforcement backup. Now, phase two of that program and grant was to spread that outside of the city of Florence to communities like Mapleton, Dune City, Swiss Home, Deadwood, you know, in that community, in that area, rural area around Florence. But we can't move to phase two because we do not have enough sheriff's deputies to back them up. Can't do some of this, you know, you know, state of the art mental health response if you don't have law enforcement with it. So everyone that wants to defund law enforcement, you are by taking away those folks, taking away the mental health response. So, you know, that's just the front end. You know, we're leading on the front end how we respond on the street, you know, and our use of body cams in this state is pretty widespread. Our Lane County Sheriff's Department was one of the first departments to voluntarily enter into the FBI's program that when they started it up in 2015 to report use of force in a national database. We were a leader moving into that. And in fact, our, our sheriff's department is well known for disciplining for excessive force and for disciplining those that don't report excessive force. You know, so it, you know we're you know we're there, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and that's just on the front end of the fleet of the public safety system. You get into things like our treatment courts, our downward departure programs that keep people out of prison. The, the change in the way we do supervision. You know, parole officers used to basically be a glorified cop in some ways. They basically were there to catch parolees violating their conditions of parole and send them back to prison. They called it tail in jail as a PO. And you're supposed to keep track of people so they wouldn't disappear into the woods and all that stuff. And it was more about trying to protect the public from the person released from prison than anything. Now parole officers are 90% caseworkers. They're trained in teaching these folks about cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy and changing the way they make decisions. They're trained in trauma-informed care, so they understand that a lot of the folks that they're dealing with were also victims at one point. Or you know, have childhood issues they're dealing with. And in the case of women, almost every woman that's in contact with the criminal justice system is also a victim of a crime. So their role as parole officers is completely changed. And, you know, our parole department has, has actually been invited to give talks at national conferences 
on, you know, for parole officers on what we're doing here in Lane County. So from the front end with things like cahoots to the tail end with things like our parole officers and things like sponsors, who, by the way, most of their funding comes through either our human services department or direct grants to them or from our public safety budget. So sponsors that does post-prison um, you know, uh, reintegration work, which they provide housing, job training, and they also continue that cognitive behavioral therapy and other work with the, with the folks reentering society, and has proven to really reduce recidivism and get people back into the community safely for the community and safely for the person and make them a, you know, contributing member of society, you know, we, we, we do so much in Oregon. We just, you know, should push back a little bit on this whole idea of police are bad, all cops are bastards. I'm sure you've seen that ACAB, A-C-A-B, scrawled all over the place recently. That's what that stands for. You know, I, I, I know lots of law enforcement folks. Like I said, I sit on the public safety committee. I work with them all the time. You know, that does not describe the majority of, of folks. You know, you know it's, it's like society. You know, they're, they're cross-section of society. There's going to be one or two bad apples in there. The trick is to try and keep them out in the first place, which, you know, our Lane County Sheriff's Department does a rigorous mental health screening as part of the application process. You know, to become, to even start your training as a sheriff's deputy. You go through this mental health screening process. Not, besides the background check and the physical you know, you have to, you know, the physical you have to pass where you have to do so many sit-ups, got to run, you know, all that good, you know, stuff to show that you're physically fit. And then you got to do a background check and you've know, got to pass, you know, the drug test and all that stuff. You've got to, you, you've got to pass a mental health screening too to make sure that you're, you know, have the right, you know, disposition to be a good public servant, which is what police are. They're public servants. They're usually called and dealing with people when they're at their highest stress level ever in their life. You know, think about when, if, you, if you've ever had to call the police. How, you know, it wasn't when you were relaxed and, and you know, on, on a Saturday afternoon and, you know, just finished mowing the lawn and cracking a beer open or whatever else. No, it's when you are under duress for some reason. And that's when they show up and deal with people. And they know that. And they go into that, that world knowing that. And part of their training is how to deal with that. How to, 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 to deal with people in that high-stress world, the de-escalation training they do. And, and the, to calm, you know, get people to, to, to give them the, the facts so they can, you know, react to situations well. Passing a state law that dictates what uniforms 
we're going to buy across the state from various departments, you know, it, it's just insane. It's not where we need to go. What we need to do is adequately fund some of the programs that are really working, which the legislature has refused to do. They've refused to adequately fund parole and probation. They've refused to make their to keep their promises just in funding the Justice Reinvestment Grant Program. They've traditionally underfunded the Oregon State Police. Thank God they're finally starting to get a little bit more money, but then they're being pulled to Portland to deal with the protesters. So rural communities are left without that, that state police backup to sheriff's departments that were decimated by the end timber funds. So we're back to that Portland sucking sound where all the public resources that our state leadership puts out there seem to all go to Portland while the rest of the state is left to deal with whatever. And we're supposed to be the playground for everybody else in Portland. And that's what they told us is you need to convert from a timber economy to a tourism economy. You need to convert from mining to tourism. You need to convert from fishing to tourism. Everything was going to be about tourism so the folks in Portland would have some place to play. Well, you know, if there's no governments down here and there's no people that can be employed to run the hotels and restaurants and everything else you folks from Portland want to come down and visit, it's not going to be that much fun. We need to have a rural economy where we're creating wealth, not trading wealth. And I mean creating wealth by taking something and adding value to it. Whether that's a tree, harvesting it, cutting it up into lumber, and then maybe even going beyond that and going to mass timber to create, you know, skyscrapers that are made out of wood. Adding that kind of value brings, creates wealth. Trading wealth, which is what tourism and a lot of that sort of service sector does, basically is just taking wealth somebody else created and trading it around the economy. It doesn't pull people up, doesn't make a, a community prosperous. Creating wealth makes people prosperous and brings up the standard of living for everybody. Trading wealth just keeps you where you are. In fact, it'll actually eventually bring things down. We need to create wealth in rural Oregon and outside of Portland. We need to harvest trees. We need to harvest crops, we need to harvest fish. You know, we need to create wealth. We need to have manufacturing jobs. We don't need tourism jobs. Tourism is a big part of our economy, and I want it to be successful. It can't be the only part of our economy. Because look what happened to the tourism industry with COVID, and is it ever going to be back? I mean, I can't understand what's going to be happening to the poor hotel industry here in, in the Eugene area now. They canceled, canceled all the duck um, football games this fall. 
I mean, every home game brings between six and eight million dollars into our local economy. And people that come here to watch the games just won't have that here. But we don't need COVID relief down here locally, Governor. It all has to go to Portland because the Pac-12 has schools in Portland. Wrong. Wonder how Corvallis and Benton County are going to do without the Beavers playing games this year. Well, I've probably ranted enough for this Bose Nose show. If you can tell, I'm kind of fired up and I'm really tired of the two different levels of, of you know, animals here in, in Oregon. Some animals are just more equal than others, it seems like. And if you're an animal that lives in the Portland metro area, or if you're involved in the high levels of state government, you're a little bit more equal than the rest of us animals out here in the, in, in the hinterlands of Oregon. And you know, I'm I'm a little bit tired of you know that that disparity and the inequity. I mean, equity has been a bit, you know buzzword lately. What's the equity in Portland Metro folks getting over $170 per person in COVID relief funds up front with no strings from the state, and the rest of the state having to beg for ours in a reimbursement model? at $64 to $74 per person. How is that equitable, Governor? How is that equitable, Speaker Kotek? How is that equitable, Senate President Courtney? How is that equitable, Emergency Board for the Legislature? We need to have equitable treatment for us out here away from Portland. We also need our Oregon State Police to be patrolling out here, not reacting to riots in downtown Portland. It's time for Ted Wheeler and Kate Brown to step up and put an end to that. Well, here music. Day. Thank you for listening today. I know I was probably a little bit more fired up than usual. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose No Show. Hopefully, I'll be a little bit more cheerful. We'll have some upbeat topics to talk about. Oh, I just want to thank you for listening. Have a great week. Bye-bye.